0: Good morning again and welcome. Welcome especially to our visitors. I'm happy you're here. At this time in our worship service, we turn our attention to the preaching of God's Word. So I invite you to take a Bible and find James chapter 4. James chapter 4, if you're visiting, it is our custom to preach the Bible verse by verse. And at this point, we have reached James chapter 4. And I want to warn you guys, if you have not read this passage... Recently or studied it recently, it is going to shock you This is one of the more shocking passages in scripture to read And my goal is simply to expose it and explain it That's it So together In one mind having the same goal Will you follow along with me as I read it James 4 Verses 1 through 10. James, the brother of our Lord Jesus, writes, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy before God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Not exactly a passage of scripture that you see on Christian t-shirts, or framed on your wall at home. Or tacked on someone's arm. Because this passage is meant to be a strong rebuke. A strong rebuke to a group of Christians who had problems. The title of the message today is How to Solve Problems in Church, Part 1. For... Uh, The time I have, I can only get through the first six verses. And in two weeks, I will unpack the last three. In life, I think we could agree that one of the most sought-after skills employers look for in an employee is the ability to solve problems. I once heard a professor state, he said, quote, When you graduate... Employers are not going to be looking for people who are going to be looking for people who can solve problems. No one is going to ask you about when the Spanish-American War was fought because you can Google it. My job is to prepare you for the workforce, which means I must teach you how to solve problems. And I, I wish that would be the philosophy of every educational institution, don't you? Because it's true. A lot of the facts we learn in school, we learn them for a good reason, but the facts alone do not prepare you for the workforce. You need to be a problem solver. If not a problem solver, you are not going to advance at all or very quickly. Because the reality is that there's never a shortage of problems. There's never a shortage of conflict anywhere you go. At home, at work, at school, on the team, in the community, and yes, even in church. Every church. There's no such thing as a perfect church. There's no such thing as a church free of drama, free of weakness, free of failure, immaturity, or even quarrels to some degree at some time. And for those of you visiting with us this morning, or for those of you who have not yet become members, I want to be upfront and honest. I'm not, I don't want to be a fake Christian. I definitely don't want to be a superficial pastor. So I'll be the first to admit that SVBC is nothing close to being perfect. Some of you are thinking, yeah, that's because we have you for a pastor, buddy. In all seriousness, there's no such thing as a perfect church, right? And it's been that way since the beginning. Since the beginning of the church, when the Lord Jesus came and commissioned his apostles to be the foundation of the church, there have always been problems. And in fact, a simple bird's eye view of the New Testament reveals that most of, the, uh, most of the reasons why Paul wrote the epistles was to correct and chastise local churches. 1 Corinthians is all about correcting immoral behavior, such as disunity, fornication, adultery, and so on. 2 Corinthians is all about Paul defending his apostleship against attackers within the church. Colossians, if you remember, I preached that a couple of years ago. Colossians is all about defending the truth of the person of Christ against false teachers. 2 Thessalonians was written to correct a false understanding and practice that had arisen with regard to the return of Jesus. And the pastorals, First and Second Timothy, they were written to encourage and help. A young discouraged pastor who was in the wake of all kinds of problems. And then we get to James. And guess what? Did James's writers have issues? You could say so. They had serious issues. And that's what we read about in James 4, 1 to 10. These people were literally killing each other fighting, envying, they had problems. So my aim today is to show you all from Scripture that there's a response to problems in the church. And this passage can be easily divided up into three sections, which are really three steps to dealing with problems in the church. To solve a problem, it's easy for us to come at it with a systematic process. These steps are very simple and easy to understand, and if we can all understand and employ these steps, every time we're presented with a problem in this church, we will be on the road to greater health and maturity, which is the goal of every Christian. Amen? So the first step to solving problems in church Is to identify the cause. Identify the cause of the problem and it's this. Sin against God. Every problem in every institution, including the church, arises because of sin. Look at verse 1. James says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source, your pleasures... It's not the source of your pleasures. It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? With the answer stated. The pleasures comes from the Greek word hedone, which we get the English word hedonism. And it means to have pleasure, gratification, or enjoyment. In the New Testament, this word is only used to speak of physical pleasure. And it always has a negative connotation. Speaking of passionate desires for worldly pleasures that mark unbelievers. For instance, Titus 3.3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. The pleasures there are the internal source of the external conflict in church. But what is the source of the source? Okay, the source is sin, but what is the source of the sin? It's the human heart. Also known as the depraved natural mind. Look at verse 1 again. It's not the source, your pleasures, that wage war in your members. This is another way of saying your heart. Every human soul has a raging battle inside of them. And James, like Paul, uses members to speak of the sinful, fallen human nature. Therein lies the source of every problem under the sun. Why do we have church splits? Because of sin. Why do we have to excommunicate people? Because of sin. Why are there fights in church? Because of sin. People enslaved to sin. And when people are enslaved to sin, they lust. Verse 2. James says, you lust, which means you are having the ongoing craving, sinful context for pleasure. But then he says, you lust and you do not have. So you commit murder. Murder. Murder is the taking of an innocent life or the killing of a righteous person. It is the natural destination of a sinful, evil desire unobtained. Listen, unbelievers kill to get what they want, they did from the beginning. We see this in Scripture. To the narrative of whom? Cain and Abel. In Genesis 4, it's revealed that Yahweh rejects Cain's offering because of his apostate heart. He craved God's acceptance. And when he did not get it, the the Hebrew text says he became ma'od angry. Very angry. Red hot, boiling, fuming mad. Why? Because his brother was accepted and he wanted to be too. No doubt Cain desired the same regard as Abel received, but he didn't find it. So in Genesis 4 8, we read, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Isn't that shocking? How how many of you have a sibling? Now, I know that a little sibling rivalry is normal because I have two of them. But can you imagine the rage that it would take to literally drive you to kill your own brother? Only one enslaved to sinful lusts do those sort of things. And the reality is is that it happens every day, doesn't it? And it will continue to happen until Christ comes again. We're reminded of this depth of human depravity as we've witnessed recently. Criminals lusting for some satanic radical vengeance executed upon police officers. The incidents in Dallas and Baton Rouge were perpetrated by evil enslaved men. Who were fueled by what? Sinful lusts. They didn't get what they thought they deserved, so they killed. Those are the people that James is talking about here. But the difference was that the cop killers were on the street or perched on a rooftop. The people that James is talking to were in and among the Diaspora. The Jewish believers scattered throughout Palestine. These tares among the wheat were also envious, James goes on to say, which is zealous lust. They couldn't obtain, so if they're not going to kill, they're going to fight. Because when people harbor such fierce desire and fail to get it, conflict abounds. And if people want and they can't get, when met with opposition, they come to blows. Now, this should be shocking and sobering because this really happened. These people were killing and fighting to be christians because they coveted so this this sort of living not only separates man from redemption the sin but it also separates a man from communication with god look what james has to say next he says, you do not have because you do not ask now why would men not ask god for anything Well, simply put, because they're unwilling to ask him on his terms. God has specific terms on how we are to approach his throne. There's a way we ought to pray, folks. And it's not whimsical. Our prayers should never be requests for things that aren't necessary or spiritually good. We mustn't think of God as our personal genie. Who's just waiting to grant us our fleshly wishes. We must never think of God the Father as a happy-go-lucky Santa Claus. Working hard to bring our material wants to fruition. That's not a way to pray. The model prayer that Jesus left for us is what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. Or the Disciples' Prayer. And if we simply observe this prayer found in Matthew 6 verses 9 to 13 and follow that model, then our prayers should merely consist of six petitions. Here's a crash course on prayer. Ready? Number one, you ask for God's name to be venerated. Then you ask for God's rule to come. His kingly supreme rule to come. Your kingdom come. Then you ask for God's will to be done. Then you ask for daily physical necessities. Fifth, you ask for forgiveness of sin. And lastly, you ask for protection from sin. That's it. Those six petitions. Nothing more, nothing less. There's no petition for wealth, fame, pleasure, or success. And when unbelievers learn that that's how to pray, and they learn that's what we're to pray for, they say, forget it. I desire more than that. I desire more than forgiveness. I desire more than daily bread. That's boring. I deserve more than that out of life. So if that's the kind of prayer that God hears, why pray? To the depraved mind. But James also, you know, in a sense, it seems like he's contradicting himself in the next verse, doesn't it? He says, you do not ask, but then he says, you ask. (laughs) What's up with that? Well, understand these things in generalities here. Well, a lot of unbelievers don't pray because it's boring or because they don't get their prayers answered because they pray for selfish things, some people that don't really truly believe pray. I used to. How many of you before your conversion would you pray? Me? Look at verse 3. Young believers who do pray, James makes it very clear that they don't get their prayers answered. He says, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And here we have a clear answer as to why prayers go unanswered. When you pray with the wrong motives, with the wrong heart desire, God will not oblige. Because as we see here, very plainly, God is not in the business of granting self-serving, self-appreciating, self-advancing requests. The Jews understood this principle very clearly. Because they knew Isaiah 59. Isaiah wrote to a pre-exilic Israel, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And then there's Psalm 68, verse 18. The psalmist says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The weeping prophet Jeremiah, writing to an exilic Judah, proclaimed to the people. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. isn't it? There are many more passages in Scripture that could be cited, but you get the picture. God promises to ignore the prayers of people whose lives are characterized by sin. Now, with regard to prayer in your personal life, many perhaps well-intended believers go around quoting Psalm 37, verse 4, which goes like this. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the eyes of your hearts. Now, my brothers and sisters, my precious, loyal sheep, please stop using that verse as a proof text to justify asking God for worldly things. Notice the qualifier delight yourself in the Lord. That means that in your heart, the very core of your being, you truly find peace and fulfillment in him alone. It means that you truly find satisfaction and worth in Christ alone. And if you find ultimate fulfillment in those eternal things, your desires will begin to parallel his desires. And what are God's desires for you? Be sanctified, to become holy and blameless like his son. And so if we truly place priority on the Lord, chances are our heart's desire will not be a brand new Rolls Royce. Our house or the job we want, or that relationship we want. But our greatest desires will be eternal treasures. So to sum up, when you pray with a heart bent on self-service, I've got to be a true messenger and tell you that God will not answer your prayers. Or mine. But if you pray with a pure heart for the right things, you can have faith that God will. And James' readers apparently struggled with having the right perspective on prayer. Do you? Do you find yourself asking God for things with the wrong motives? If so, then the source of the problem is sin. That's the cause of the problem sin against God. And there's a costly result. Which leads us to the second step in problem solving. First, identify the problem. Identify the source of the problem. Sin against God. Second step, accept the results of the problem. The results of the problem summed up in one phrase is separation from God. Separation from God. Look at verse 4. The angel goes on to say, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. He gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. After nine times, James called his his readers brothers, or my dear brothers. The address he chose to employ here in verse 4 really catches our attention, doesn't it? He goes from calling them brothers, which is a fatherly, tender title, He shifts gears here. And he says, you adulteresses. A very strong indictment. So this marks a transition in the text here. And after we read this harsh indictment, we continue to see the strongest call to repentance in the New Testament. James' readers would have been very familiar also with this language because the Old Covenant prophets frequently compared the relationship between Yahweh and his people to a marriage relationship. So given the historical use of the word and the present context, James is clearly referring to spiritual adultery. Jeremiah 3.20 but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, speaking to Israel, have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares Yahweh. So James, following his tradition, uses adulteresses to label his readers as unfaithful people before God. And so how could they legitimately be charged with spiritual adult uh, Adultery. Well, let's keep reading. In verse four, we see that in effect that they were committing spiritual adultery by seeking friendship with the world. Verse four, when it says, "Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God?" And now, to understand the gravitas of this statement, we need to jettison our view of friendship. And consider what it would have meant to be a friend in James' day, okay? Because when we think of a friend, we typically think of somebody that we hang out with occasionally, right? Or perhaps if you have one or two or three really close friends that you babysit for or go on vacations with or help them move. You're a blessed person. But even then... Are two or three close friends, it's not the same kind of relationship that James is talking about here. In the Hellenistic period, or the Greek world that James was writing in, friendship involved sharing all things in unity, both spiritual and physical. So back then, a friend wasn't simply someone that you planned an occasional dinner with, it meant that there was a tight, Unified commonality and constant ongoing fellowship. And to illustrate this, we see this played out in the very beginning of the church's infancy. Acts 2. It says, and all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Then Acts 4, we also read that the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. You see the unity? And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them we've come a long way in our American culture from that, haven't we? So if we understand that that is what James meant by friendship, then it's easy to understand that if a man is a friend of the world, he cannot be a friend of God. Because according to what's revealed here, the world is hostile to God. In fact... James goes on to insist, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, he does not have a neutral relationship with God as a distant admirer, but is in the fullest sense God's adversary. To be God's enemy is to be in spiritual darkness. And to be in spiritual darkness is to have the sovereign, omnipotent king of the universe as your ultimate foe. Now that makes perfect sense to me. Because James wrote this passage for people like me. Before my conversion to Christ, growing up in a nominal Catholic community, God was my number one enemy. In my blindness, of course, I would give periodic lip service to God's existence, confess that he made the world, and depending on what day, what mood I was in, I might even be willing to confess that certain parts of the Bible were true and binding on me. Even though I had never picked up a Bible. I hated God. My actions proved it. But I loved the world. And my actions proved it. So the point of the the point here way of application is, you cannot love God and the world. You will either hate the things of this world, or you will hate the things of God. Which are revealed in his written word. You cannot love both. You will hate one and love the other. You either love him because he loved you first. Or you love the world because it's natural for all of us to do so. But not only is it natural, and our members are the source of our problems, remember? It's natural for us, but it's also sinful to love the world. 1 John two, fifteen and 16 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So, now if we're commanded to not love the world, what does that really mean? I mean, what does it really mean not to love the world? Because we might be thinking, well, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, right? And the second greatest commandment that Jesus gave us was to love your neighbor. So how can Jesus love the world? And how can we obey the command to love people? But then be confronted with something like this. To love the world makes makes you an enemy of God. Do Do not be in love with the world. Well, this is where our, again, our interpretive skills come into play. You have to make an interpretive decision with regard to the semantic range of the word world. And we know that in the Bible, when we see the word world, cosmos in the Greek, it has three primary meanings. It can refer to the physical earth. It can refer to the general sphere of humankind who live on the earth. And it can also refer, based on the context, to the humanistic system that is at odds with God. So given that knowledge, how do you think John used the word world in 1 John 2.15? And how was James using the word world? Multiple choice. C is the correct answer, right? The last option. When we are told not to love the world, we are warned about being friends with the world. It's referring to the world's corrupt moral value system of the fallen mankind. It also makes sense when we consider 2 Corinthians 4.4, which says that Satan is the god of this world. So to love the world, to be a friend of the world, is to be a friend of Satan. Because the human, humanistic, sinful, fallen, immoral, depraved humankind is under the rule of Satan. And dominion and influence of Satan. So this is why it's absolutely imperative... For you as a Christ follower to be careful and discerning with regard to who you choose to be your closest friends. If your best friends are world lovers and not God lovers, then what they love will begin to rub off on you. And in turn will have a corrupting effect on your soul. Paul told the Corinthians, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts what? Good morals. That is to say that worldly people are a corrupting influence. Paul also said to the Corinthians, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? So it's vital for you to be wise and discerning with whom you allow to influence you. Especially if you're young. And I'm not just talking about being physically, I'm talking about being spiritually young. If you're spiritually young and untrained... This applies to you as well. People professing to be Christians for decades can still become easily influenced by the world. For us who truly believe, we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind, and therefore we should loathe the sinful world and reject its corrupting influence. Now in verses 5 and 6, with what time I have left, James describes a couple additional results of sin in the life of the church community. Which is disregard for Scripture and pride. Wherever you see worldliness, you will see a repudiation of God's Word and the worst of human arrogance. Look at verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture says to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now, James here is not quoting an Old Testament text. Rather, he is speaking of a general scriptural principle. Now, this verse is difficult to understand because even on the surface of the text, not, not every translation, if you do a comparison, capitalizes he and spirit which begs the questions, number one, who is the antecedent of he? In other words, who is the he referring to? And is spirit referring to the spirit, with a capital S, or man's fallen spirit, small s? If you compare English translations, you're left with an interpretive decision to make. Well, in the Greek, the pronoun he is absent. Some translators supply that. And we have to keep in mind that in the original Greek manuscripts, there are no capital letters anywhere. So, in my study, we consider the KJV. The old KJV comes through for us once in a while. It says, Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit, small that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now not all Bible scholars agree on this on the precise meaning of this verse but the overar the overarching point seems clear and that's this James could be referring to the natural spirit of envy in every man By nature we are envious creatures aren't we not We see something that we want someone else has And we battle envy, don't we? So therefore, given the context, I believe James is basically saying that those who are in hostility towards God reflect that hostility by not trusting or obeying his word. They refuse to acknowledge their natural enmity towards God and innate innate bent on evil. And how true is this? How true is it for unbelievers to despise that truth? Because most people think they're good, don't they? Most people before God, they think they're good. They think they will stand before God's throne on Judgment Day. On their own. On their own merits. But what does Scripture say? What does the Bible say? We're a Bible church. What does the Bible say about that common theology? It says, if you, O Lord, can mark iniquity, who could stand? It is by grace we are saved through faith. Galatians 2.19. A man is not justified, declared righteous in God's sight through works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So the scripture is clear on the nature of men. Men who are hostile, they prove the veracity of scripture, which teaches that we have a spirit of envy. Another place to go to understand this principle is Genesis 6-5. If you want a go-to verse to help you understand the nature of men, Genesis 6, 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It can't get any more clearer than that. Only evil continually. So another one of these results of living a life of sinning against God is a rejection Of biblical truths. Lastly. Another is human pride. The result of sin. Verse 6 says. But he gives a grace. He gives a a greater grace. Therefore it says God is opposed to the proud. But gives a grace to the humble. Some good news at the end of this verse, huh? He quotes here, James does, Proverbs 3.34. A truth that's not new. God has always humbled the arrogant and saved the humble. The word opposed here was used of the military depicting Full army ready for battle. So God is in as we used to say in the army, full battle rattle against against pride. Full battle rattle against anyone who supposedly elevates himself above others and above God. God is ready to go to war with you. And I'm not a prophet. But I would, I would say God's going to win every time. But the good news is that he has always been gracious to. God has always been gracious to the low-minded, the humble, the contrite. He forgives the humble. He blesses the humble. He adopts the humble. And he embraces the humble. He always has and he always will so remember this remember this and embrace this there is a condition to be saved and that's to come to the living God understanding who you are we are all Benefactors of the fall, we are all sick with the spirit of envy. At one time or another, even before your conversion, you were enemy of God. But if you're saved today, that changed when you got humbled. It's summed up in Isaiah 66, verse 2. But to this one I will look, God says. To him who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word, trembles at your word. So this is why we have a high view of scripture at this church. Because God looks to those who have a high view and trembles at his word. We have to implant it deep within us. And respond. Conflict in the church is expected. And it's inevitable. It will never go away because we're all sinners and constantly at war. Within our members. We're constantly at war with our self-desires. Romans 7. The Apostle Paul himself experienced the same inner battle. But just because we must learn to live with conflict doesn't mean we shouldn't try to prevent it either. We can learn from James 4. We don't have to model their example of murder and envy and quarreling. We don't have to be friends with the world. We can repent from that and humble ourselves in the sight of God and men and be redeemed to him. To do that, you must identify the cause of the problem, which is sin against God. And then accept the result of the problem, separation from God. And when you accept the result of the problem, then there's a solution to be found. And that's what we'll cover in two weeks from now. We'll consider the third step in the problem-solving process in church as we expose verses 7 to 10 next time. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's clear. Thank you that we can understand it and analyze it and break it down and feast on it. May this text shock us. May we be touched by the outrageous behavior of these Jewish believers who are killing and stealing and envying and fighting, resulting in a hostile relationship with you. May we respond appropriately and submit to you, humble ourselves, so we can be reconciled to you first and foremost and experience the unity of the bond of peace that your church is called to do. We love you in Jesus' name.